Welcome to Mommy Diary the Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Kim. I'm a creative lifestyle blogger and mom of four. This podcast is all about honest stories of motherhood and real conversations with real women just like you. I believe women are stronger together, and sharing our personal stories can bring empowerment, inspiration, and peace to someone else. Making connections is what brought me here today. Each week, my guests and I will share how we've overcome challenges in order to find authentic joy and purpose. We'll talk about motherhood, marriage, careers, mental health, spirituality, and everything in between. I'm so glad you're here. Let's start the show. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for joining us on Mommy Diary, the podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Jenny Wang. And just to give you a brief introduction, Dr. Wang is a Taiwanese-American clinical psychologist and national speaker on Asian-American mental health and racial trauma. And I'm a huge fan of her work in the Asian-American community, especially as well as mental health as it pertains to women. So I know she's really busy, but I had to ask her to come on to the show. So I'm so grateful for her time. And I know that our um, discussion today is going to be so valuable to many of you. So thank you so much, Jenny, for being on this show. Should I call you Jenny or Dr. Wayne? What do you feel most comfortable with? Please call me Jenny. <laughs> thank you. Okay. <laughs> thank you. But because I know, like, you know, I know I feel kind of rude just to, call, you know, call people by their first names from the get go. But I, what I like about this community that is that we're very, like, more personal. I feel like more intimately connected to even to the listeners. So I was telling Jenny earlier, I would love to go into more personal details as well. At the end, you'll be able to know like where you can find her and what she does. But I really wanted to like delve into her personal stories as a woman, as a mother, as a wife, and as a sister, and what, what all of that means in being a part of Asian American community and the unique challenges that we face today. So my first question to you, Jenny, is can you just talk to us about your own journey and how you came to find this career. And I can tell that this is a very purpose-driven journey for you, like how that came about and why you're doing what you're doing today. Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's so great to be able to have conversations with, you know, people who have resonance, right, with the Asian American experience um, and really being able to share voices across the entire spectrum, right? Because being Korean American, being Taiwanese American, even within that, there's so much uniqueness. Um, so thank you for creating those spaces for us. Um, you know, my journey really to mental health, you know, sometimes I feel like people are thinking I'll have this really traumatic or intense story, maybe a personal struggle or a family struggle with mental health. And honestly, I would say that there wasn't anything that was earth shattering in my journey to mental health. It wasn't as though um, there were certain kind of major life altering events that brought me here. But I think that is what is the misconception about mental health is that we think it must be something severe, something diagnosable, something earth shattering for us to call it mental health. 
But actually mental health is in those imperceptible moments between people, between how you engage with your parents during conflict, how you talk to your children when they're in pain, how you handle your marriage when things don't feel connected. Those are mental health moments too. Wow. As you were saying that you are so right. You're like right on that. You know, for me, mental health was uh, like two words that just didn't exist in my personal vocabulary until I experienced what I later discovered was postpartum depression. And it was my first time. Like I had absolutely like zero knowledge around this topic. And I'm glad now it's being talked about a lot. But looking back, I'm pretty sure that I was I had some mental health issues, even as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And again, like this was, you know, undiagnosed, untreated, I never saw a therapist, I never talked to anyone about it. But these are all things that I'm understanding now. And like you said, it's not like I've had like, traumatic stories, you know, I know, like I didn't have like abusive parents, or, you know, a crazy life altering or life shattering moment. But you're right, it was those little everyday moments and maybe not feeling understood or feeling repressed emotionally, dealing with my very strict immigrant parents who didn't trust not just me, but now looking back, I think they lacked trust of America. Mm -hmm. There was so much fear because they were first generation. So there was so much fear around even me being in school and going over to a friend's house. So I hope we can go into that. I I love that we're beginning the conversation with this because I do believe that it was those everyday interactions within our homes that created a lot of um, layers of issues with mental health. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think that I remember, you know, people will always say, well, when did you start becoming interested in these ideas of talking to people as a pathway to healing? And when I look back at my history, I realized that this was something I did for my own mother growing up, right? That she was also first generation immigrant from Taiwan, was quite young um, for her age. And so really we're talking about intergenerational effects, trauma. She um, was the youngest child of three kids. She had two older brothers. And for that reason, being a female and the youngest, she was not able to pursue education at the highest level. Her parents or my grandparents were poor. And so there was very limited resources And so on top of that, we're talking about patriarchy, right? We're talking about very strong elements that weave into Asian culture that predominantly favor men, right? And so in those influences, um, she came to America and she was trying to navigate speaking English, learning how to drive a car, right? These are stories that as Asian American first and second generation we felt and saw this intimately. And so often my mom, you know, I was remember being in elementary school and she would share stories. Most of them very painful, very, you know, very um, difficult stories. And often she would become emotional and she would cry. 
And so I look back at those moments as she, as a mid 20 year old, trying to make sense of her emotions, her trauma, right? Her experiences in a completely new world. And I realized that I think that's where some of this began without even me realizing it. But my journey then went into college as a business major because it was the most practical option. And so as I was studying business, I knew internally it was not right. I could feel that this was not the right profession for me, but I was not sure where else I could go. And my parents were supportive in that they would say, if you can figure out what you want to do, we will support you. But my exposure to what professions looked like were so narrow, right? It was doctor, lawyer, engineer, business. <laughs> and so I had no idea that there was an entire field in mental health. And so uh, my then boyfriend, now husband, was a liberal arts major and had taken all these philosophy psychology courses and basically said, you need to try this. You need to just take a class and see what happens. Um, and after taking that one psychology 101 class, it just altered my world. Um, and so that's kind of how I started making that shift into mental health. And also, I went to a very large public university, and there was not one Asian American professor at the time. This was something that left a very strong impression on me. And I think that as I've come to a place where I feel more integrated in my racial identity, I think that was one way in which I got there was to say, you know what, being Asian American makes me unique and it makes me uniquely suited to help our community as a mental health professional. So that's kind of briefly how I got to this kind of space. So were you aware of the fact, like from the beginning, that you wanted to specifically help the Asian American community at the time? Was that part of your plan? And if so, did that leave any like fears or, you know, like anxieties? Because sometimes like for me, um, like I always dreamed of being an author and I would love to talk about the Asian American experience, but sometimes you wonder if that's like limiting for your op occupation or, you know, for your purpose. Cause I know there are a lot of like collective, you know, issues that we can all relate to. And there are very specific, like micro, right? Like issues that are very specific to Asian Americans that others can't really understand. Like, how do you navigate, I guess, to those two identities as an Asian American professional? Mm, such a great question. I have to be honest and say that when I went into mental health, I wasn't necessarily going into it just to serve Asian Americans. I think it was more so that I wanted to be a psychologist who was Asian American. I wasn't thinking about being an Asian American only serving psychologist, if that makes sense. However, I think as I was in graduate school, I realized even in my cultural competency courses, right, that were required to take, Asian Americans were not even mentioned as a racial group. And I know that that has changed. It was a long time since I've been in graduate school. But I realized that we were not even on the table 
as a group of individuals who were worth understanding and who were appreciated enough that we needed to help train professionals to appropriately work with our community. And so I would say that so much of what I've learned about working with our community occurred after graduate school in working with clients. And I think being Asian American, I tended to attract more Asian American clients. And so it was through that intimate work where these ideas really started to develop nuance and that I could then right come out in a more wider space and talk about these complexities. I think a lot of times people talk about Asian American identity as like, well, they're collectivistic versus individualistic, right? And that's really the only binary we hear about for understanding Asian American psyche. But that is such a narrow and simplistic view of our experience, right? And so I think that in this work, doing more of it, I started to see, like you mentioned earlier, the layers and how could myself as a professional, but as somebody living it, help put words to those experiences for other people. I love that. So when you're in graduate school, um, this is a personal question. Did you face any racism in the academia, you know, working towards your graduate degree? So I was somewhat lucky, and I say lucky in the sense that in my cohort of eight students of my year, um, I had a Black um, student or, you know, a classmate. I also had a Filipino-American classmate. And so honestly, my cohort of eight actually had the most diverse group of students, which is not that diverse because there's only a couple of us. Um, However... I found that there was a lot of implicit favoritism within different systems where people would get, you know, opportunities to work in certain settings or to work with certain people because they had connections. And that's one of the things that I find is so difficult for Asian Americans pursuing mental health is that we often come into this with no connections. We often come into this with no knowledge of what even the field looks like. So how do we break through, right? And so I think that when I look back, and maybe I just have blocked it from my memory, I don't remember overt racism, but I remember a lot of minimization, invalidation, disregard even, like almost like a sense of invisibility. And that was a more prominent feeling than somebody, you know, saying a racial slur or something like that at me. I can totally relate. And I ask you this question because I too was in the academia um, at one point of my life. And I dreamed of being a professor of Asian American studies because that was one area I felt I saw a void. There were no Asian American professors. And I was really, in, I loved to read and write and analyze texts. And I realized there's a lack of Asian American authors, theories, studies. And so that's what I really wanted to do. And when I was in my graduate program, just like you said, I never experienced, you know, blatant racism, but I did experience uh, a power dynamic that existed within our, um, our department with the dean, with the chairman, like whenever he calls us in, I was one of the graduate students who had the privilege of teaching as TAs. And I felt something similar. It was almost like being minimized. 
like I just realized I didn't have the same weight in that program, like my white male peers. And it didn't really exist with my friends. They were all great people. Again, no one was, it was a very implied, very quiet. It was just, it was a feeling. It was a feeling that I got and I couldn't even go out there and repeat what I was feeling. I, there was nowhere to really go with these feelings because they'll say, I think you're kind of overreacting or do you have proof? that this was truly the intention of this professor who was talking to you. Um, There were times where I felt like my grades were unfair because the topics that I discussed, like fetishizing women, Asian women, um, I was doing a thesis on memoirs of a geisha, how that objectifies Asian female bodies. So when my grader, the readers are white males, and I'm like directly talking to that, I sensed a lot of resistance. And again, it wasn't like, wow, this sucks, you know, screw you. It was not not like that. It was a very subtle, like I knew that certain ideas would be taken better or understood if my readers were not males. There were just layers and layers, patriarchy, there was sexism, and there was, you know, racism, subtle racism. So it's layers and layers of barriers I had to break through. Long story short, I ended up leaving academia. I was in a PhD program. I actually dropped out. But then I, you know, because I had to mother my children. Long story short, I still look back back to those years with a lot of, uh, I I wouldn't say trauma, because it wasn't that severe. But there were definitely experiences that shaped my worldview as an Asian American female professional right? Like this was beyond college. This was like after beyond college into motherhood as a full grown adult and still navigating, you know, these, um, the power dynamic, the power structure that's clearly in place. And I felt so helpless and I knew I was just one person and there was really a lack of community, lack of, there wasn't really a place I can go to, you know, So today I'm really grateful to be doing what I'm doing. That's why I ask you these questions because it must be, I'm sure, like you said, there are like subtle, you know, feelings um, of being minimized or silenced or even like reading a book and knowing I don't exist in this story, right? Like, what can we do? Like, I'm, I'm sure these are like recurring themes, right? In our work and even as we raise a next generation of Asian American kids. And I think this is why what you're doing is so important because we have to talk about this. We must discuss this. Like this isn't one of those things where we just look the other way, just, you know, just put your head down, keep your head down and just work hard and get your degrees and everything's going to be fine. Like it's really not that. And I realize the higher you try to move up. And when I say higher, I don't mean like in terms of money, more in terms of like your goals, right? Like finding your purpose and like a bigger difference you want to make. I realized you hit that, that barrier, right? And that's why I wanted to have you on the show, like to really, I mean, I don't know if there's a clear answer to this, but I think it's important that we talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like, what are your thoughts about that? Yes, um, I think that this is something, especially as, right, it, our generation, right, of Asian Americans, 
we are in different spheres of influence now, right? And the adaptations of our parents and how they handled racism, right? Because back then there were no celebrities that were Asian that would talk about anti-Asian violence. There were not people in politics or power who could amplify these voices. And so our parents had to adapt, right? By doing the very things that we are trying to now shed as adaptations, right? Even for myself, uh, you know, when I think about engaging in different activities, right, of potentially writing a book or potentially doing different things, it triggers that imposter syndrome button. Am I good enough? Am I going to reflect my community well, right? That sense of reputation holding and saving face that is part of that Asian American experience. And while it's not inherently bad, it's not inherently good either. And what we need to do is to say, does this still apply in this situation at this moment in time, right? And so even that imposter syndrome button that I think I hear a lot from my clients and other Asian American professionals of like, I want to move up, but then I'm also scared of moving up because what if I can't hack it? What if I can't do what I've been asked to do? And then you have that layer of racism that implies you need to know your place in these systems. And so often what I try to say is we can, and we have the ability to reframe that imposter syndrome, that the fear that it conjures up might actually be a message that you are actually doing something worthwhile, that for once you are taking risks, right? For big long-term goals and rewards and without fear. And if you lived without fear, then I would actually wonder, are you growing? Are you challenging yourself enough? And that the fear is not a reflection of ability or skill or capability. It's a reflection that perhaps you are taking the necessary steps to advance. Because if that is your goal, then we have to accept that fear is part of the experience. Is it fair to say that as Asian Americans, we may have more fears because of, you know, and I'm sure this really depends on, it's like, it depends on the person. But if I think about the cultural, racial, the gender trauma that our parents, right, that our parents experience and their parents experience, um, I'm not too familiar with uh, Taiwanese history, but I know for Koreans, there was a history of war, devastating war. So that's where a lot of our older parents or our um, grandparents were all from that that um, generation of um, just living in poverty and being colonized. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how that affects our own level. I think some fear is normal, but sometimes I do feel like I may have more fears or more imposter syndrome because of the fact that I was always kind of put back into my place. And when I say this, I don't mean to, I, you know, I've had therapy and I've worked through a lot of my issues, but when I say this, I mean, like we were put in our place a lot, like Asian children, not only by our parents, but also by culture, um, by elders. And then when we, 
we go to school, it could be our teachers. You know, when you try to further your studies, it can be the dean of your department. It could be your boss, right? And I feel that this like level of fear and insecurity maybe stems from a deeper place. And again, I I, I don't want to generalize and say this is only specific to Asian Americans, but I do think that Asian Americans may have more tendency because of the fact that we were so repressed and put into our place constantly through our entire lives. I do agree with you that I think that these fears do come from a deeper place. Similar to Korea, right? Taiwan was also colonized by Japan. And so there was a lot of influences from the several decade occupation in Taiwan. And so I think that there was a lot of modeling of deference, right? Of I must submit myself to a greater power, which was very threatening, right? I remember as a child, my mom telling us stories about how, you know, Taiwanese people, if they were too vocal under Japanese rule, they would just disappear in the middle of the night, right? That they would somehow be captured, probably put to death, right? And so there was fear and it was a necessary part of their existence because they needed to survive, right? And so when we think about trauma, it really is just a sense of, I'm not safe. There is something in my world that is making me fearful that I cannot preserve my safety. And so I do believe that there are intergenerational effects of how socially our parents might protect us more intensely because of their experiences, right? That they may be more um, restrictive in our lives to protect us, right? Um, I remember, you know, not being able to go to sleepovers for a period of time, right? And that things were always a sense of make sure you follow the rules, make sure, right, you obey. And I think that type of mentality, though it was protective, may not serve these next generations of Asian Americans because obedience is not enough for us to advance and grow. And think about this too. And this is a big element that I talk um, with, you know, corporate conversations is we cannot be innovative and creative if we don't feel safe. For example, if you worked for a company and your job was to come up with innovative ideas, but there is an intense sense of judgment, criticism, racism, sexism, how would you ever feel confident enough to offer innovative ideas and take risks. So notice how, right, if there's not an environment of safety, those aspects of identity have to shut down to protect itself. And so it goes hand in hand, right? That more safety we feel and have, then the more we can um, be creative and innovative, right, and be unique, I wonder, gosh, there's so many good points here. It just really makes me reflect about my own life and stories of others that I've heard. And I wonder 
first of all, I don't know if like speaking from my own personal experience, if my parents ever truly felt safe when they were raising us, I think now they do. Um, they achieved their, you know, quote, unquote, American dream, and they're better now, and they're more well adjusted to this American life. But when they were raising us, I'm sure there was a fear of losing their job. Again, the fear of America, like not understanding the culture, not being able to speak the language. My mom's been here for well over 30 years, and she still doesn't speak English. And she still says when she comes to visit me from Seattle, like she still gets scared sometimes that people will ask her too many questions. And there are times when she'll come and tell me, you know, I think this flight attendant wasn't very nice, even though I was riding first class. And I wonder if it's because I'm an older Asian female. I think that there's a lot of um, like just not feeling safe and, you know, being feeling misunderstood. And she I know she feels like she lacks voice in this country, even though as a Korean woman and Korean, she's a boss. Like a lot of our Asian mothers are bosses, right? They're, they're amazing. If I look back and think about all the amazing things our moms did, like they are strong women and they are not weak. They're not meek. They're not submissive yet in, in when faced with this white American culture, right? They become so small. And even till this day, when I hear my mom say that, when I, just observe her and watch her. I still feel like a sense of loss and grief. Like I feel so bad that they had to do lose so much and their sense of identity to come leave their country and leave their motherland and speak a whole different language and have to just adjust in this world that now their children are struggling, right? To fully adjust. So my parents will still ask me like, are you, do you think we did the right thing by coming to America? Like they'll still ask me this. Recently, my dad asked me this. I said, of course, dad, because America is an amazing place and it truly is and can be a land of opportunities. And I know that I'm doing so much more here than I could have done back in Korea, I think, because, you know, I'm sure that Korea is not free from gender inequality and all the other things, but I also know there was a part of our family, a part of our history that was lost, you know, or a part of our identity that was lost. I don't know. I'm just like, because what you're saying is just so like profound that I'm, I just find myself reflecting a lot on the different things you're um, saying. And two, I really want to do things differently for the next generation as a mother. So I'm grateful for what our parents' generation did for us. But at the same time, I know that we need to do things differently and that um, being disobedient to our family's wishes is sometimes a good thing for the future generation. So again, that's like another, right? Like gray area that we have to navigate. And I would love to hear your thoughts about that. And yeah, I'm just like really enjoying this conversation, Jenny. I'm feeling very emotional and moved because I think about all the collective like stories, the history, the trauma, the grief, and perhaps this is part of the Asian American experience, right? Like sometimes you don't even have to say it. Like we just kind of understand. And it's powerful, right? Like you can feel, and you said it was just a feeling, that I couldn't even put words to. And yet, if you made eye contact with another Asian American in that moment, 
you would know. And I think that when we do just this, when we do this very thing of telling our stories, our community heals through that, right? When we can unlock those painful memories and experiences and the shame. And you mentioned the word shame. And I feel like that is such a powerful idea in Asian culture. It's something that oh, makes my stomach tighten up, right? This sense of I've done something wrong or maybe there's something bad about me. And shame is one of the most powerful pathways that racism becomes internalized. That when somebody is mean to us as a child because of our race, we will say, that means that there's something wrong with me, with my identity. That's what shame is, right? And so I think that you're absolutely right, that we can do better for our kids. I think that one way in which we can do that is to talk about the existence of these system level effects on their lives. You know, just um, last year before COVID and, you know, we had to shut down, Somebody at school during Lunar New Year celebrations, when my daughter was wearing her traditional clothing, made one of those gestures we knew growing up, where a boy pulled his eyes to the side of his face at my daughter. And I will tell you, when her teacher told me about this, and I was walking home with her that day, I couldn't help but start crying. And that is how racialized trauma extends through our lifetime that I'm a grown woman. I'm almost 40. And yet my child being bullied can trigger such emotionality because our bodies don't forget. We can tell our minds that we're safe now. We can tell ourselves that we are beyond that. But the moment that button is pushed, those circuits get activated And we remember intensely. We remember when our parents were laughed at for their accents. We remember when they were mistreated because they could not speak English fluently. We remember every single one of those moments intensely. But because one society told us, you're being too sensitive. You're not getting as bad of treatment as other people. And then the other side, culturally, of Just ignore it. Sweep it under the rug, right? Don't feel too much. Don't pay too much attention to it because then it might overtake us. And so internally, culturally, and externally, societally, we've been told to push away and down our racialized trauma for generations. And I think that's why this current moment in time that we're talking with all of this anti-Asian violence is pushing that button for so many of us and triggering a lot of this past pain that we've never dealt with. You know, I was very triggered recently. I'm, I'm sure you know, but I've been very outspoken 
about what's happening in the Asian American community, even during Trump's presidency. You know, when he was using the the words China virus, I was so I already knew like what that can do to so many um, Americans. But I got a lot of, oh, it's not a big deal. What's wrong with the term? It's, you know, politically correct or geographically correct. And there was a lot of minimizing of what for me was such a, a very emotional, intense, a very big thing. But everyone else seemed to just minimize it as if I was crazy for thinking that these words were very derogatory. And I think oftentimes, you know, similarly, when it comes to these like racial, racialized feelings or um, experiences or encounters, especially Asian Americans, we're made to feel like it's not a big deal. And it's almost like it's normalized. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know about, but for me, like I, I would talk to my parents about, oh, you know, these kids were mean to me. They call me these names. They almost see it as just a part of, right, Asian American experience. There is no processing of those experiences or feelings. And, you know, again, I wonder how that affects us now, you know, where a lot of us are grown parents ourselves and looking back and I'm sure a lot of us had mental health issues even as adolescents that were never treated that were never discussed and a lot of us carried this for me I think I carried some of that into my marriage and it hit me through motherhood because I was sleep deprived and I was triggered in so many different ways because it's during motherhood when you are challenged to the core, right? That's when it's like the hardest part, hardest moment of your life is motherhood or when you first try to transition into motherhood. So I believe that was more of a triggering event. I don't think it began in that moment. You know, it was just, it all accumulated over my different like life experiences. And I want to talk to you. I want to ask you, I'm sure now you see a lot of Asian American clients, like do you see, is this a, a theme like that kind of comes up where a lot of what's happening now as adults, are we kind of going back and fixing or healing things that were never addressed properly when they should have? And another question is, what can we do? And I know there's no way to be a perfect mom or perfect parent, even though, you know, I, I think I'm very well aware and well read and well educated, but I'm sure my teenage daughter will tell you I could sometimes I suck as a mom but you know I want to do better like what can we do as parents to minimize you know minimize their need for like major intervention with their adults (laughs) later (laughs) yes yes I think to your first question that this is a theme that is emerging for a lot of Asian Americans I would say that that's true I think that when you are now exposed to all of this information that all these other people, right, um, have been subjected to racism and the effects of white toxicity. I'm not going to say supremacy, but toxicity. Then I think it gives people permission to say, it wasn't me. It was the fact that there was this system set up against me, right? And I think for a lot of us, We thought it was us. We thought there was something wrong with us. And that's why those kids are so mean. Or that's why, right, we were mistreated. But I think when we can name that there are these bigger structures at play and bigger effects at play, it releases us from some of that shame too. And I think that 
Now a lot of people are seeking out therapists to work on the racial identity piece, right? Where I think, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I remember when I was a teenager, I was like, I don't want to be Asian. I'm going to be as white as I can, right? I like deliberately did not play violin and I did not, right, do certain activities so that I wasn't seen as too Asian. And as I've kind of, you know, aged and grown up, I've realized that, hold on, I cannot abandon that part of who I am. And I think a lot of us are hitting that. And so many of us are at different parts of that journey, right? That I think healing for us looks like acceptance and integration, that I can choose the parts of my Asian identity that I want to carry forward and choose the parts of my American identity that I want to carry forward and pass forward to our children. And so I think that when we consider how we can help our children and do differently in parenting, I can think of a couple key elements. Um, One of the first things is obedience cannot be the model for our parenting. Because what happens is if we enforce obedience and we interpret disobedience as an attack on our authority, it will force us to exert even more power over our children to establish that authority. But what happens then is our children lose the ability to think for themselves because they've been told what to do their entire lives. And so when they leave your home and they go to college and people start exerting influences on them, they will not know how to think for themselves. They will not know how to make decisions or to assess situations because we've stripped them of that ability by telling them what to do. And so that's kind of one of the things that I um, really try to enforce with my parents. Another thing that we can definitely do better on is we can start to learn emotional literacy skills. We can teach these skills to our kids. The more we give our kids permission to feel their emotions and not pathologize their emotions, the much more equipped they will be to trust their emotions when fear, when anxiety, when anger comes through, they then can say, huh, my mind is trying to alert me to an issue that I can address. But if we minimize or suppress emotions, we lose all of the alert systems that our brains naturally are wired to engage in. And so if they're used to suppressing emotions like anger, when somebody crosses a boundary with them, they won't recognize that anger as this is the result of a boundary crossing and they won't know how to stick up for themselves. So emotional literacy and skills becomes another foundational step, I think, for Asian American um, parents. And then finally, we want to encourage and reframe ideas around conflict. So much of Asian culture is about relational harmony, We don't want to fight. We would rather avoid conversations than to get into an argument over it. And so what we have to recognize as parents 
if we didn't, if we weren't raised in an environment in which conflict and negotiation was valued, it will trigger us when our kids engage in conflict for us. So one, we need to recognize that and also start to view conflict as the pathway to skill development for assertiveness, for negotiation, for knowing what you want. And that conflict also is how we deepen relationships with other people. I always say with married couples, if they come to me, I don't often work with couples, but if the wife, since I work with females, says, oh, we never fight, I have a red flag that goes up. Because if you never fight, that means one person is always giving in to the other, right? And so to me, conflict is an opportunity for us to develop skills and also deepen and strengthen that relationship. But the problem is that a lot of us have never learned how to fight well, to fight with ground rules, right? And a system. And so these would be the three areas that I would say we could really work on in our Asian parenting. I I love that. I think you like, it just, it's so succinct. Yeah, it's so true. So I really hope that if you're listening and if those three points like just hit home the way it did for me, I hope you um, look for Jenny's page and I'm sure she educates us further on that. But you know what I was thinking about while you're teaching us this is that in Asian American families, typically, not all, you see like two types of families. It's either very like families who don't fight, which was like my my um, my husband's family, like there was no argument like my husband didn't know that couples fight that married couples actually fight and I on the other hand came from a family with a lot of fights but it was almost like too much fighting right where it was like a lot of anger and we didn't know how to fight fairly and there were no boundaries so there was like this two polar opposites like a family complete It was almost like a dictatorship, like patriarchy, you know, whatever father says goes. And then my family, you know, my mom was strong yet, you know, she had her, you know, it was like a very dysfunctional, (laughs) right? (laughs) When I I say dysfunction, I I say that in like the most loving way. I, I love my crazy dysfunctional family and we've all, we're all working through it now as adults. But looking back, I see that. And when you told me the story of your childhood about how your mom, you know, would tell you these stories and with tears in her eyes. I, I heard that with a lot of fondness in my heart. The fact that your mom was vulnerable enough to cry tears in front of her young daughter to me shows so much courage that a lot of Asian mothers didn't see as courage. They saw that as weakness. Like for me, I didn't really see tears from my mom. And sometimes I wish I did. Right. And again, it was one of those like the, the the polar opposite between like complete. I'm OK. Everything's fine versus and then it'll just go to something crazy, have like anger. Right. And you're like, where did this come from? Like what happened from like zero to ten? Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of our healthier, you know, confrontations should happen somewhere in the middle. But I remember feeling that a lot, like everything's fine. And then all of a sudden something is happening. In the home, and I and I believe this is something that happens occurs frequently in Asian American homes because of the lack of language and conversation around the healthy, you know, relationship building and the conf- confrontation. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I've been 
for me, like crying as a mom in front of my children was very foreign, but it's something that I do do. And I think it's great because it teaches my children that mom's human. You know, I'm human just like you and I'm not perfect, right? Like there may be days when I'm angry or overly sensitive where, you know, like some things can trigger me in ways that maybe it shouldn't. And I would tell my kids, you know, I'm sorry, I'm mommy's just having a rough day. And this is how I'm feeling. And I think that's really important. I, as I have these conversations with my children, their ages like 16 to one, I revisit my own childhood. And I, I realized I never had these very open and vulnerable conversations with my own parents, with my dad, it still doesn't exist with my mom, it's starting now. So it gives me a lot of, um, I feel really bad. You know, and I think that's a lot of uh, feelings, a lot of Asian American children, we feel really bad for our parents, because we see underneath all of that, right, all the issues that a lot of us have, we see their heart, and we see how much they loved us, we see how much they've sacrificed for us, right? So it's like, that's, I think, why a lot of Asian children, even now, we want to take care of our parents, right? And that's why when Asian elders get attacked, it's very triggering. Like I couldn't be on social media and I couldn't watch those videos because I would feel intense emotions where I would literally just feel depressed and anger. And I think it comes from that because again, like we discussed earlier, these don't have to be voiced. Like we just, it's a feeling, it's a collective feeling and we love our parents and our, 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 our grandparents and our elders, right? So as, you know, we see a lot of violence towards our community, what can we do? Because now we have more resources and influence in our own communities. And we don't need to be doing amazing things, right? Like you don't have to be an author or a, a professor or a professional. Like we are all influencers in our own communities. If you can give us some, you know, practical tips strategies like what we can do to like further this conversation and to help our community because our community's in crisis right now yes and i love how you said that we don't have to be a person with a platform a person with a book right or a podcast we can just be in our spheres of influence and to have an impact and i think that one of the things that we first I think is helpful to do is to heal our own racial trauma. Because when we talk about racial trauma and being allies, right, and being vocal, you will get attacked. That's just the reality of it, right? And so we need to heal those triggers and those circuits, right, that had been wired in the past so that when we get pushed back, when people say, no, I don't believe you. Asians are so wealthy and educated. They can't be, you know, subjects of racism that we are not triggered and then rendering our work less effective. So that's the first thing I would say. Secondly, I would say that in your spheres of influence, what does it look like for you to take up space? And some of us, are taking up space or have gotten accustomed to that idea of taking up space and having a voice. But for some of us, we are just beginning that. And so if your company was one of the companies that put up one of those, like, we stand against Asian hate and all of that, 
What does it look like for you to lean into that a little bit and say, hey, I saw you made that statement. So what system or company-wide changes or programs, right, or types of hiring that we do, can we, right, lean into that a little bit more and actually put action to the words? Because we will see a lot of words, but often very few actions from companies or organizations that want to support the Asian American community. So I would say that's another way is to hold our spheres of influence accountable for their position that they are now taking. And so that's kind of another space. And then finally, I would say, I mean, obviously amplifying as many voices as you can that are speaking about this. But I also think that we need to talk to our children about race. I just did a workshop a couple months ago and we had over 300 attendees and it was t- about how you talk to pay- your children as Asian American parents about racism and race. And that becomes such a critical skill because as we practice it with our children, we're learning and so are they. And I think that is the critical step that was missing between that first wave of immigrants that came from Asia is that they didn't have awareness, skills, or honestly, energy. Most of our parents were so exhausted that they could not even address the emotions and the conversations. And so that gap meant that we have a whole generation of Asian Americans who never processed any of those experiences and learned from it. And so now we're having to become the parent that we maybe didn't have growing up. Right, in offering that to our children. So those would be three areas that I could see us stepping into to really act on these changes. That is amazing. You are right on, and I totally agree with you. And it's not easy doing what we were never taught to do. But I think it's times like this. This is why I value your time so much. This is where community matters, right? Like if we're trying to do this alone, most likely we will give up because it's hard. This is hard stuff. Um, Even for myself, even as a a blogger, I don't like the word influencer, but you know, I have to sometimes put myself in very uncomfortable situations and have some very uncomfortable conversations in my DM. A lot of it come into my inbox. And you're so right. I, I love that you brought up the point of healing my own racial trauma. So the trigger happens less and less. And I hope to, um, seek more guidance through through your page. I love the messages that you've been sending to the community. And I think we need to find each other. And I think we need to share more and just be um, a community and truly help each other. And when things are hard, we can remind each other why we are doing the work that we're doing in our respective fields and you know why this is so important. This is not just about us. It's for an entire generation of Asian American children. And I, and, and this is, where I think we are almost too humble about our power in the marketplace because Asian Americans were like the fastest growing racial group in America. And our spending powers is like, I think in trillions, it's amazing. Like I have to look at the exact numbers, but the brands and the companies better recognize us and they better know that we exist because we have a lot of money to be, spending in the marketplace. So now I've become more mindful about supporting brands 
supporting a lot of Asian-owned small brands, as well as like not shopping in certain, you know, not shopping certain brands that have that are like you know involved in some type of controversy because I just don't want my money going to you know people like that. So I think that's another thing that we have to remember. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So thank you so much, Jenny, Dr. Wing, for your time today. And where can we find you for more information? I know that there's so much great um, insight today. I think I'm gonna go back and listen to this, and I've been very emotionally triggered, but not in a bad way. I I feel like there's a lot of things that I have to reflect on. I thought I was all done because I've gone through years of therapy for this, but now I'm realizing, okay, there's some more work left to do, which I think is a really good thing. And um, where can we go find you for more information and more guidance? And how does your um, individual sessions work? Sure. Yes. So you can find me at my website. It's just www.jennywangphd.com. Um, I actually have a several um, recorded workshops that I've done for Asian American parents on those very topics of boundaries, conflict resolution, emotion. And so you can find them there. Um, if you're interested in becoming a client, if you live in the state of Texas, then I might be able to work with you. Um, and you can find that information on my website as well. And then um, my Instagram account, Asians for Mental Health, is where I often will post resources for free because I know that not everybody can afford therapy and not everybody has access to it. Um, and so I just started a new series where I will be talking about psychological skills that we can all be practicing. Um, and I try to do that within 10 minutes. So that's like a little challenge to myself to make it really easy to understand and digestible. Thank you so much for your time today, as I know how busy you are. And thank you for all that you're doing for the community. I really appreciate showing up, even though I know it's not always easy, especially as a mom of two young children. I really appreciate all the work that you do. And I can't wait to continue to follow you on your journey. So thank you so much, Dr. Wing. Well, thank you so much for having me today. It was such a pleasure. And I really feel like you are, this is your work, right? This is your sphere of influence. And I think that you creating these important conversations gives people access to information that helps them heal and grow. So thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you. That means so much. Thank you so much. And I'll talk to you soon. You are my sunlight. Thanks so much for listening to Mommy Diary, the podcast. If you can relate to any of my stories, my hope is that you leave this episode feeling a little less alone and a lot more inspired. For more parenting and lifestyle stories, head over to my blog, mommy-diary.com or join me on Instagram at mommydiary. If you're loving this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and leave a five-star review. I love connecting with you, so send me a DM and let me know what you'd like to hear next. Talk to you next week.